Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and later on I'll be joined by Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld. Things are slowing down a little in the garden and in this episode Chris and I want to encourage you to stop worrying about tidying up. It's not necessary, leave it be so that the wee beasties can bed down and hibernate and the seed heads can sustain the birds. But if you want to do something that will repay you in the years to come, then now's the time for some shrub and hedgerow planting, as well as perhaps planting a tree. We've got an autumnal postbag lined up this time where we discuss late blight, allium leaf miner, and what to do with a surprise glut of climbing French beans. And Chris has been in Scotland talking to Kirsty Wilson, best known as presenter on the brilliant Beech Grove Garden programme, but she also wears other hats, as we'll be hearing. Before all that, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils, and balms. Known as the vitamin company with an organic part, their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health stores across the UK. To find out more, visit viridian-nutrition.com. And now I'm off to catch up with Chris. Well, Chris, here we are. It's that lovely time of year, autumn. Um, Last month, we managed to meet in a physical potting shed, which was just so much fun. I'm hoping we're going to do that again. Um, But for anybody who's listening now, we're back to our virtual potting shed. Chris is joining from London. I'm speaking from Wrighton, just outside Coventry, where Garden Organics based. So here we are thinking ahead. So what have you got planned for autumn, Chris? Well, it's a combination really for me, autumn. I mean, for for gardeners generally, it's quite a busy time because I would call this what I call the planting period. The soil is still fairly warm. It's a good idea to plant this time of year because it gives the plant over the winter time to get its roots down because it's a strong start in the spring. So with one eye on that, it's really busy. On the other eye, it's quite relaxing time. It's starting to go to sleep. I've said this many times. I look at the trees and I feel jealous because they'll sleep all winter and I have to keep grafting and paying a mortgage. So they've got that (laughs) advantage. And I just think I I like that sort of the peace that comes with it in a way. You've got a bit of time to kind of regroup and, you know, the the, the bindweed isn't suddenly racing up, you know, the the broad beans or whatever. (laughs) You know, you've got time to just kind of get ahead again and to actually feel optimistic about next year. Definitely. I'm I'm not going to be dreaming about horsetail for at least five months. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's a bit of a nightmare, is it? Nightmare. It is, uh, one that never ends. But yeah, it's kind of like so you, you, you can plant, you can get busy if that's what you would do. If you want to make changes to your garden, if you're looking at that shrub that you've been thinking that's been in the wrong place for too long, you can then move it. You can. This is the time to do it. I've got a big job on coming up soon where I'll be planting, well, basically a mini woodland. We're going to plant 2,000 whips. Yeah, one-year-old sort of um, trees that are propagated. So then, in my way, they're kind of the best things to plant if you're planting in large numbers because they're young, they're usually localised, they're bare roots, they're not coming in pots, they haven't brought in from abroad or anything like that. And so you plant thick and then you definitely get taken, you'll get definitely get results. Um, I'm doing a hedge as well, so I'll put a load of natives in. I tend to plant that with whips at 30 centimetre gaps each plant and I do it on a stagger. So 30 centimetres on the left, 30 centimetres on the right, 30 centimetres on the left, and you'll get a really quick hedge quite quickly. So that's a big job. I'll be doing for autumn. So that's kind of like hands-on. But the other side of it is obviously I'll be on the allotment. And one of my concerns there will be I worry about the birds and the winter coming mm. and the wildlife. And that's kind of going to be one of my considerations too. So just let's just talk about whips because they are unbelievably um, fast-growing, aren't they? And and it's like sort of a um, 
you know, it, it, it wants to grow. You know, you, you look at something that frankly just looks all a bit unpromising and it, mm. it's hard to believe it's going to take off. So talk us through that. Well, it's got the, uh, and I wish I still had it too, Fiona, it's got the vigour of youth. Yes, <laughs> it, I know. It's got, it's got, it's got all that, yeah, yes, that energy, energy. That, that energy that we are still trying to hang on to. So <laughs> you've just got that, you've got that. But also it's important is actually if you're going to get whips, you can get a lot of local growers, which means they'll be, they be acclimatised to your situation. So you've got yes. two advantages, the, the, um, the vigour of youth and the fact it's localised, bare root, your carbon footprint's tiny. You're, you're ticking a lot of sustainability boxes as well. Um, so, I mean, the other thing that's important to point out, you might not want to whip. You might want to plant one tree or two trees. So whips are good for mass planting. So you might want a feather, a standard, a heavy standard. Those plants will need more care and attention. They'll need mulching in the spring. You have to make sure you water them properly in the first season. So if you plant 4,000 whips and you're getting, you know, two and a half, 2,000 whips out of it or one and a half thousand whips, that's a woodland, a forest in 50 years. So you've just got that, because they're cheap and they're localised, you've just got that element of success. But you are playing the, the long game. It's not like buying a beautiful Ace of Grisium from the garden centre and spot planting it in the lawn and it looking, you know, that's a specimen and you have to look after that, whereas whips are about, you know, redecorating the countryside, I suppose, is a really nice way to look at it. Well, they are, but I also think that they're a brilliant way of planting a hedge, aren't they? Or, or just doing even a kind of small localised bit of planting um, you know, in your neighbourhood. And I, I wonder, actually, where do you get hold of whips, you know, in in an ordinary setting? You know, where where could I just go and buy a few whips? People like the Woodland Trust and stuff will give whips away. Quite a lot yes. of people give, give whips away. Or you can contact wholesale tree growers that will have them. Um, I would definitely encourage you to look locally. We've all got access to the internet. There'll be growers out there you can go and get them from. Um, so it, I don't think it's a problem getting hold of whips. You can get them if you're doing community projects. A lot of charities will give you them for free. Um, so you can get them. They'll bring along in bundles, and you can do them for free. So I don't think it's any problem getting hold of them. Um, and it's really nice, I think, if you can do it through the vehicle of a neighbourhood scheme or a, or a, a volunteer, where you've got your neighbours or a few of you together. That, as you just described, you want to make your local with area prettier, or use those bits of land up that are just neglected. No one's touching. It's a great little uh, social adhesive, a bit of whip planting. Yeah, fantastic idea. Absolutely. So uh, that's one great idea for, for some planting that people can be getting on with. But what else are you thinking about in terms of putting things in the soil? Because you're saying the soil's still a bit warm. It's not too late. Certainly, I would and I would be planting. A, still, I would always, if I, I've done most of it now, but it's not too late to plant a basis. You can get your basis in, you can move your shrubs. But I put in my spring bedding as well. So I've got my bulbs in. We talked about bulbs quite extensively. They're all in, they're all settled. I love a forget-me-not. Well, who doesn't yes. like a forget-me-not? So do I. So amazing. Do I. If Especially on... if you put them with um, red tulips. I think they exactly. just look gorgeous. Yeah. They just under, sit under the bulb. And, they, and also, if you put them on an allotment or something like that, they're quite free-seeding. So they kind yes. of they pop back next year, you know, like an old friend. And I like that about them. And obviously, Biola, all the pansies, they all go in now as well. So I'll have that as a little balcony drop, a little treat for myself during the course of November. Any seeds you can sow now, or is this all stuff that's already, you know, you know, come forward into little it's, plants? It's all stuff I've sown. You can still try and get away. I'm still sowing some veg seeds. I'm still sowing salad crops and stuff like that. I'm pushing my luck a little bit now. But, you know, it's a quid for a packet of rocket, isn't it? So I'm sure I've wasted money on other things. <laughs> well, and also that. you can harvest yeah. it really small as well, can't you? So you can micro even grow green. that on a windowsill yeah. and have it as a microgreen. Yeah. Well, well, in the flat, I'm still doing my mini allotment in my tomato trays, and I grow them with little radishes and uh, chard. So you can still seed. I'm not really looking at seeding for colour for flowers this time of year. Other gardeners might be, but I just stick to that 
all my uh, plants are going in as plug or small plants now. I have to say, Chris, as usual, you're well ahead of me. I'm feeling very inadequate. I haven't even got my bulbs in. My beds are still full of late vegetables. You know, I've only just harvested my corn, just cut the final tops off my artichoke. So I, I, I kind of left it all in because it was. I was so excited that I was still getting produce so late because we had that real hot burst in in September and, and things came to seem to carry on developing through October. But that means I am really behind. And, you know, I'm kind of looking out the window thinking, oh, OK, what 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 do I need to do now to start to get kind of winter ready? Well, for a start, you're not too late on the bulbs. But I've planted bulbs right up to Christmas in the past. And they yes. are amazingly determined plants. <laughs> they come back every time. So if any area you're thinking of bulbs, you can still get them in. It's not an issue at all. So if you've got spent vegetables, dig them up, put them in the compost bin, plant bowls. Plant something over the top, like we've just described. Plant your wallflowers or your forget-me-nots, your panties over the top, and that protects the soil. And then you know, you're not going to get leaching. You're not ex- you haven't got exposed soil. If you haven't got you know all the room to fill with bulbs, I would just leave your vegetables in, really. It's better than bare ground. My allotment's still got all the brassicas in it. It's got parsnips in it. It's got all my potatoes are still in the ground near enough. So you can kind of harvest those things gradually. So I wouldn't worry. My thing that would worry me is if I had lots of bare soil and, it yes. was, and, it, and the rain was hitting it and the nutrients were getting washed through it and it was getting damaged. So better a plant there than nothing at all. But it's definitely not too late for bulbs. Definitely not too late for spring bedding. Definitely not too late if you want to get really imaginative and put a new shrubbery in or some sort of a basis border. It's the perfect time to do it. Well, one thing I do want to do is dig up my dahlias. Um, because they were absolutely gorgeous. I mean, they were really, really late and very, very short-lived this year, but they were gorgeous and I, I'd hate to lose them, actually. So um, that's one thing I'm, I've still got time to do, um, dig them up, dry them out, put them in the shed. That's my plan. Um, and I, I like the idea of, of leaving some of those veg just standing and the mm. birds are going to love it, aren't they? And, you know, particularly the sweet corn, I guess I could cut some of those down a bit. What has happened is there's been a lot of wind damage. A lot of stuff has just keeled over, basically. So I'm wanting to clear that out. But anything that's standing, I like that idea. I'm just going to leave it. Yeah, I don't, you know, I know we we tend to be um, far too tidy. We like to always clear everything and cut everything down. And it's a bit like a base of stuff now. I don't cut that down. I let... It's the perfect environment for spiders and beetles or whatever to overwinter. Looks great with the frost on it. So you have to just let a bit, you know, as an organic gardener, we have to be a bit more relaxed about it all, I think. And I quite enjoy that. I quite enjoy my lot at the moment. All the hardy annuals have gone to seed. So they've died. They're all browning up. There's all seed pods on them. I quite, that's the time of year to see that, isn't it? That's its character now. It's like, you know, we dress up as Father Christmas in December. They stay as, they stay as strawy foliage with frost on and spider's webs. It's kind of part of the character of it all. So, you know, it's about holding back. I know people like to be tidy and neat, but you can hold back and let, let nature have a little bit of a foothold as well. One thing now we need to be concerned about is, is making sure nature's got cover, like I've just described. Um, bird life, through the summer, I don't feed my birds. I know that Geo have done podcasts on this on the past with experts. I want my small birds to be eating caterpillars and aphids, etc. So I don't feed them now through the summer. There's enough food around, but I've now put my bird feeders up. I felt quite um, emotional because I've missed them all through the summer, to be yes. honest. But they're back in numbers, and I put my water out. So I have a little bit of a thought as the food sort of decreases, the natural food decreases, it's quite a nice time to to help the birdies out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a that's a very positive way to think about the winter because the thing about 
winter is that you can see the birds that much better can't you because there isn't so much leaf cover and 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 so actually you know the joy of a, you know that kind of flash of orange or you know, and they're just... so grateful Fiona they're so grateful they're on the feeders uh... they look so happy about it I feel like I feel like I'm spreading the love when I see them on the feeders I really do and that's nice isn't it it is nice and I've got very tall over tall hedge at the bottom of the garden I mean we're talking really over tall I've got something to come in to help me to to just to take that down a little bit but I'm very concerned that not to do too much disturbing underneath that hedge and I remember talking to a, a garden organic member who told me that she'd had some people who come and help her take a take a hedge down a bit exactly the same scenario they then got the leaf blower and they'd blown out mm. all the all the stuff from underneath the hedge and she went rushing out the house and said, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. That's everyone's home, you know. Mm. And I think there is something about, let's just not, goodness sake, don't be faffing around with leaf blowers, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh. You, like, there's two things going on at the moment, the sound of fireworks and the sound of the leaf blower. Oh. <laughs> you just see people's incessant need to just keep tidying up. You've got it in one, that's, that's the home for quite a lot of wildlife, mm. quite important wildlife. Could be solo bees. Could be spiders, could be all these animal earwigs. Earwigs are quite important. Um, they'll, eat, they'll eat aphids and stuff. People don't realise. I think that, you know, just let it go. You're not going to be out there much in the winter anyway. We're not going to be sitting out there having wine parties and barbecues, etc. Leave it to nature a little bit. Leave it to nature. Let it be their manner for a few months. I think that's a nice way to look at it. It will repay you, won't it? That's the point, because it will actually serve to turn your garden into an ecosystem, you know, in in and of itself. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, I like to think of it as we're all friends together. Yes, indeed. Now, what about thinking in terms of plant health as well? So through the winter, you know, we do see a lot of decay and, and that kind of thing towards the end of autumn. And how do we make sure that we've got a healthy growing area um, through the winter? Well, I would like to I'd call it what I call the DDD rule. So a lot of for all the deciduous stuff, especially shrubs, uh, plants like that, you can see the form when the leaves drop off it. The same rule applies to a tree, but I'm not going to encourage anyone to get up here with a chainsaw. Okay, but no. you can see the plant, so you can see what's dead. What what's you can see whether you've got crossing wood, tangled wood. A plant is like a person, right? As uh, it needs to breathe. So if it's got knotted and tangled, you're restricting that. So I do like to look, particularly at shrubs. I do like to look at them this time of year and cut out all that dead wood, that crossing wood, that tangled wood. And that allows the healthy growth, the outward growth, to start again in the spring really fresh. That's a nice tip for plant health this time of year. Also, remember, you can take all that dead wood, form a little wigwam with it, stuff it with leaves and moss, and you've got a little habitat pile as well for our bugs and our insects. Mulches I tend to leave till late winter because I don't want them to leach. But it's just a good time to sit back uh, and have a little look at the health of the plant. It's an observation period. Is it tangled? Is it messy? Have you got herbaceous plants that have rotted in the middle that are moving out? Maybe they want lifting, dividing up, replanting. It's just a little bit of time to reinvigorate things. That's a nice way to look at it, I think. Very much so. And it comes back down to that whole thing around observation. You know, just just enjoy it, experience it, and and think about it from the plant's point of view. I think the way you've you've just described that, I think that's that's absolutely fascinating to think. Well. Actually, you're helping the plant on its way if you are trimming out and allowing the air to circulate. I think it's quite a magical time of year because yes. all the spring and summer, they work for us. And this is a little bit of our opportunity to work for them. That's quite a nice way to look at it. So they're going to go back. They're going to sleep. They're going to go into dormancy. So this is quite a nice time to look at them and go, well, how can I help this plant out? I think that's a pretty nice way to look at this time of year. I think that's the thing about autumn that really surprises me every year. Kind of doesn't matter what sort of a season you've had, whether 
you've had crops or you've had crop failures, um, you know, it's been too dry, too wet, doesn't really matter because autumn always puts on a show, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a very beautiful time of year. Like I said earlier, I really enjoy that 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 movement from um, a really lively, busy summer into the peace of autumn and winter. Mm. And I'll be out and about. There's so many. Listen, the whole country's full of National Trust properties. I'll be out at Kew. I'll be out at Wakehurst. I'll be out to Wistonburg, where I planted quite a lot of trees years ago. So I'll be going out to look at the stuff I planted. Any arboretum will give you an amazing display at this time of year and i really do encourage all our listeners i'm pretty sure they will anyway to go out and soak it up absolutely chris i I, i'm right there with you chris has been back to his old stomping ground at the royal botanic garden in edinburgh where he trained but it wasn't just a trip down memory lane chris wanted to find out more about how the garden operates these days it's a fantastic garden with an important history it was founded in 1670, a whole 170 years prior to Kew. Kirsty Wilson is the herbaceous supervisor there, and she's also one of the presenters on Scotland's famous gardening programme, Beechgrove Garden, which has an enormous following. If you've never watched it, you can catch it on BBC Two or iPlayer. Chris chatted with Kirsty as they walked around the garden, so please forgive the background noise. Hello there, everybody, um, and welcome to the Garden Organic Podcast. I have a big treat today. Um, I'm in a place called Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, and you've heard me mention it before. You know how important it is to me. But I've also got a really brilliant guest today, and that's Kirsty Wilson. We're sat in the rockery, so if you hear the general public recognise her <laughs> from all her, her media work, you all know why. How are you doing, Kirsty? We might have to give it the official name of uh, Rock Garden, but no, it's lovely to have you in the in the garden back again. They all know that you've been a student, a past student. You're well known. <laughs> so the people don't forget me. You'll but. get spotted <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you've just given me a little tour a walk round yep. it's an incredible garden and we'll get to that but you've got a really amazing background just tell me a little bit about that how you got into horticulture so I'm probably a, quite a rare horticulturist in the way that I came straight from school but like you Chris I came straight here and studied and I did my degree in horticulture which I absolutely loved learning here in the botanic garden there's nowhere else better to learn actually my first graduating job was working for King Charles growing production uh, fruit and vegetables down at Highgrove and I did that for two years and that was amazing in an organic garden as well so I learned a lot there and then I always knew whilst being at the botanics in Edinburgh that many of our the curators and other horticulturists had gone to Longwood Gardens in America which was America's top public garden so I then went there for a, a year's internship placement and then after that amazing year out there I then came back and was a glasshouse supervisor at St Andrew's Botanic Garden and at the same time I did a garden design diploma. Actually, my dream job came back up at the Botanics after two years in St Andrews, and I've now been back in this position as herbaceous supervisor, which is like a garden manager for the whole herbaceous collection, and I've got a team of five horticulturalists, volunteers and students, and yeah, it certainly keeps me busy now. <laughs> when I was here for three years, and I mean this, I can't remember one bad minute of it, yeah. because you're surrounded by this amazing plant collection. Tell me a little bit about your day job, because you're working with this fantastic collection. What is it mean to be part of the botanic garden? What does it entail, I suppose? So obviously a lot of people might just come into this botanic garden and not aware, but we've got lots of plant taxonomists, scientists, we've got three million herbarium specimens. We're doing a lot of work, both conserving uh, Scottish native plants, so our own flora, as well as plants that are maybe dying out in the world um, and, you know, working really hard. We have certain collections that are really important here in Edinburgh, particularly rhododendron collections, um, and we're looking to, particularly with climate change, what 
difficult ones are you know struggling and how can we safeguard them for the future and that's the core aim well I was interested in it because I think now I'll be a bit cynical here I suppose I think that now horticulture is coming to save a little bit we've mm-hmm. sort of decided we're going to save things we're going to yeah. talk about biodiversity but botanic gardens have been doing this for decades yeah. absolutely decades haven't they it's not a new thing is it I know I've worked in four botanic gardens I think we're definitely undersold do you feel that way about it yeah and I think in any other profession we would be shouting about our skills mm. and maybe selling ourselves more and I think in the past yeah maybe scientists have been hidden away and not or we're not making people aware of all that research and all that science and all that conservation work education work we're doing and we do a lot of work around the world too in different mm. countries and collaborating with other botanical institutes around the world so uh, there's this huge network of botanic gardens that as you say has been going for hundreds of years yeah. and we've got all that knowledge um, I think yeah we just need to shout about it even we more should be. so we need people like you definitely now, in a way this is a living library yeah. it's like it's, it's not books it's plants but you mentioned well conservation that's quite interesting because botanic garden is connected to other parts of the world where conservation projects are going on give me a bit more detail on that I suppose so that's like working with other universities or botanical institutes out there you know sharing seed or we know that tree is dying out in the wild how can we share it around the world around all these botanic gardens and make sure we're safeguarding it in case it dies out also understanding how plants are in their native habitat and like why are they under threat from logging so it's like understanding biodiversity and plants and plant life so that we can protect it and look after it all these different biomes around the world all these different climates you know maybe you can't go abroad and see it but you can actually just come to a botanic garden and you get like it's called a microcosm of a world practically in this one space and it's fascinating really you do a lot of community stuff as well don't you tell us a little bit about that so we had a big project uh, about 10 12 years ago where we built this botanics cottage which was actually we've moved four times across the city which is fascinating and all these sort of like old victorian pictures of trees moving but one of the buildings which was used as a teaching resource on the other side of the city was actually we had enough funding to bring it to the garden restore it here and turn it into the -the state-of-the-art education facility and it's now known as the botanics cottage and it's used by lots of community groups it's in the demonstration garden so there's lots of examples of vegetables if you're a student here you have to have a plot and you're prescribed so much veg to grow and you design your other half but we have a you know like this morning I was just talking all about meadows to a dementia group that come in with their carers and um, we have people that like cook club and um, school children as well that also come in so there's this whole public engagement side that is really good and part of the botanics now as well you know obviously we a market garden in that area as well and all the produce it's all grown organically it goes towards our restaurants our kitchens feeds our staff and it even goes to food hubs in the city as well so I think it's making it as inclusive as possible which is what gardening is isn't yeah. it that's quite new to horticulture well, I suppose today we have, we're in parks and botanic gardens people came but that social engagement you think that's going to get that's going to get bigger isn't it that whole thing's yeah. going to get much bigger we even have baby groups we're trying to make it you know like any age you can yeah, come into yeah. this botanic garden you're going to pick up some bit of knowledge or it's going to benefit your well-being and you're going to learn about plants and you know like a lot of people that come here as a child they're going to come here all for their life they might bring their kids as yeah. well later on uh, I even remember my granny bringing me here as well so the best thing to learn about plants is in a botanic garden because everything is labelled Yes. and even as a student here you had plant identification but you know you can tell 
label or from every label where it's come from in the world and what who collected it, etc. Yeah. yeah. So and also the public can access that, can't they? To to, uh, to find that information out if they come into a garden, they can see a plant, they can back read it or yeah. go online and find out about it. Yeah. So everything is databased, and then we have a a website which is called uh, Plant Explorer, yeah. and you're able to just search any of our collection and see all the maps and know all about, all about this plant resource and living library almost. How did you do stuff on climate change with the rain garden? Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. So the rain garden was a project that was uh, designed and built with a university in Edinburgh called uh, Heriot Watt and the Water Academy and with climate change we're now having to adapt or adapt our gardens and you know not tarmac over our, our front gardens or put down that horrible astroturf and use plants as a nature based solution mm. so we had an area that flooded particularly bad in the garden and when we get these intense downpours we're now seeing paths closed off and things so we wanted to see how this research, it was like a living sort of lab rain garden that we developed and we reprofiled the soil, we put in a berm and we put in uh, plants that were both Scottish native and uh, plants that you know you could get in your local sort of garden centre as well now it doesn't flood at all, it soaks up the moisture like a sponge it's good for biodiversity and we've got still lots of students or um, a guy doing all his PhD on it and we've written a scientific paper on the rain garden and we're now working with other uh, landscape architects and the council and Scottish waters to see how we can put more rain gardens out into the city um, and use it as a nature-based solution to stop all our streets flooding in the future. Some people think it's just bog plants but these plants have to be able to cope with extreme dry and extreme wet. We don't irrigate it. Really it just shows that we shouldn't be tarmacking over big bits yeah, of the city mm. and we need to be looking at other solutions like green roofs, green walls. So it's doing these two jobs, isn't it? It look, But it looks beautiful, but it's doing this background work, which I suppose is the essence of a botanic yeah. garden, isn't it, in a way? We had to be good for biodiversity as well, and that's what we're all about, is, you know, our research and our science is going to help. Mm. It can help influence government and planners and landscape architects, and we have the expertise and the knowledge of what plants to put into these designs and how, how you can put in a rain garden in any location. So you'll maybe see more of them popping up. There's quite a lot in America. Now, rain gardens. Mm. But also, you, you, you're quite it, organic's quite important. You, say, you mentioned high, you know, high grove, and and uh, I remember when I was here, you were no, this is 30 years ago. There was um, a big thing on bio um, pest control. You had, we were putting it in cars and cryptolemas to control mealy bug. That's still very important to the botanics here, isn't it? Yeah. So in all our glass houses now, we have all just um, bio controls that are released. You know, like the good bugs eating the bad bugs. And as you say, that it's amazing that you know you were they were doing it then and we're still doing it and obviously we now have uh, any hard surfaces in the garden we don't spray any nasties weed killers or anything we use a vinegar product which is organic and it just burns the weeds so we're trying to or we're always trying like trialing out new things or electrifying weeds or I've had trialed hot foam as well and things but sometimes it's the cost of these machines yeah, and sure. new technologies mm. but we're trying to be because we're the you know one of the best gardens in the UK we're trying to be at that cutting edge it's a big pie. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got a lot more robotic lawnmowers now, right. a lot of our machinery and everything. We've got electric chippers, electric chainsaws, electric lawnmowers, our, our small buggies that the teams drive around is all electric now. So really, the only thing at the moment is like tractors. That That's the only thing still petrol. Um, no, yeah. more, no more mixing up two-stroke with yeah. oil and all yeah. that. Yeah. Which is wonderful because, you know, even cutting a hedge now, you don't have all that fumes coming into your yeah. face. And it's much cleaner, it's lighter. Um, and you just have to almost invest into a particular, you know, 
type and have the charging in the stations and yes sometimes it can take a while for you know us to adapt to it but once we all get used to these be away, tools, yeah. we're all and I, th- I would say the team have adapted really well and they really enjoy it now so then, you know, do you think that your, as your gardeners they embrace the fact that we're, we're, we're more environmentally concerned and they want to lessen their footprint etc because yeah. we are pioneers in it definitely yeah and you've got to watch at some point you know uh, you know chemicals will be banned you know certain places like Paris and New York you can't spray Tokyo they, they're all so, yeah. you know we've got to make sure that we've got the alternatives and we're green and we're clean and we are the pioneer leading that way in both green technology and what tools we're using and what to control pests and diseases and now there's many organic slug pellets nematodes so we use all that now use all that so all that biocontrol is coming into play that's brilliant it's um, just going as organic and healthy for the planet as possible yeah sure it's good isn't it and then we set an example for the public too yes I mean if if we can't do it then why should they well let's let's go back to uh, you personally because obviously you've got this TV career I mean being a man who's worked in TV it's a very different world to the world of being a gardener would you say yeah it's completely I would say it's like you have to know your plants but then you have to learn the sort of broadcasting skills yes. as well <laughs> I say I didn't get any training <laughs> now you get put in the deep end in tennis. yeah yeah so I think it's a, its own skill in itself as well but I enjoy it because it's like teaching the world about plants um, and yeah filming obviously takes a lot longer you need a lot of patience for yeah. it well you need that for gardening as well I suppose yeah. that comes in handy but you do you can be asked to do it's the like same five minutes for five hours <laughs> yeah, of your life usually isn't it yeah exactly it's not as glamorous as people make no. out but yeah. it's it's been a fantastic opportunity I've been doing the TV and then that's led to doing bits of radio as well and it all sort of spins off but I never sort of went I, I think I would always I quite like still to have the botanical career as yes. my main job yeah I'd, I'd say that's your main and the other everything else is a bonus that's the yeah. best way to look at yeah. it isn't it and right? I'm very lucky the botanics allow me to do that broadcasting and they say it's good because it you know promotes Brings the garden pretty, it helps put me a lift this yeah, place I, but that's really I mean that's great it is a very different world TV from from being a gardener but you, you know that whole thing about it promotes your career mm-hmm. as well it's, that's important but also the, the, the job you do mm-hmm. on a day to day basis it's brilliant isn't it and this is also cultivated because you have got a really good book out haven't you <laughs> I, I really love it you're plugging it I am I'm plugging it you don't need to plug it I'll do it for you well I, I had a good look I've got it here that I feel like such a fan I feel like such a fan you've been to the shop <laughs> Available. you can get signed copies of the botanic shop <laughs> I, I, I could just get you to sign you it you could go and switch it <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 was, I came in and it was on the on the visitors table and everything <laughs> but it is a beautiful book beautifully illustrated tell us a little bit about how this book came about so this book kind of came about well I am encouraged here obviously to do talks and lectures and they are always in trying to encourage you to write a book so actually during the Covid years and lockdown I wasn't going out partying I wasn't going out that often so that was you know a difficult time for everyone but it was a time to observe nature and a time for me to write that book mm. and um, it was uh, the growing appreciation of nature and I feel like biodiversity loss climate change I felt like we can sometimes feel a bit powerless and what, yeah. mm. what can we do in our own garden to make a difference well, that's what I like it's a very practical book so it's not overwhelming no. sometimes when I think if I talk to say a lot of my mates to say for instance they're builders and they, they don't want to be lectured about climate change yeah. but I, I like the idea of just 
introducing it subtly to people's lives. Mm. I think, do you, do you think that's what you're aiming at? Because it kind of, yeah. there's a lot of easy tips in there. Yeah, and like how to plant a tree, how to put in a meadow, how to plant a pond. Putting in a pond is the mm. best thing you can do for wildlife. So it's all about planting with nature in a sustainable way. And what can we do? Can we put in a native hedgerow? And it's sort of a step-by-step guide. Yeah, I've yeah. kept it simple and hopefully, yeah, it just inspires you in your own garden um, to make a difference, you know. It's, it's full of really nice practical information. It's also, we have to mention, the beautifully illustrated. Yeah, yeah. And this is a friend of yours who's illustrated, isn't it? Yeah, so Hazel France is a horticulturalist. She actually worked in my herbaceous team, but then she worked into the indoor department and she studied fine art first and then studied horticulture. But now she's got the perfect combination. So she's looking after plants in the morning in the glass house and in the afternoon she's so an artist. She's sitting with a paintbrush. What a life. Illustrator. What a life. And, uh, she, she can draw any plant. Wow. She, has, she has the most amazing illustrations and it's her first book too. She's actually just brought out another book with another colleague. She's going to get on a roll, <laughs> so isn't she? I've started her uh, <laughs> artistic career and um, she's, she was amazing and she made it come alive with all the, the birds, it, the it insects, is, yeah, the It's bees. beautifully illustrated. So I'm really happy that she was, uh, and she was a dream to work with obviously because she knows her plants. Yeah. And she could so You won't have to explain everything yeah, to her. Yeah, yeah. Illustrate them, no problem. And uh, she's really made it come alive because at one point they said, oh, you can take all the pictures, Kirsty. And I was thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make a compost bin look nice on my camera. <laughs> so I felt a bit under pressure with that. So a few meetings of like convincing them that Hazel was the, the right illustrator to go for and it's all paid off. And actually, yeah, it's a lot of work to have your first book. But to, a lot of work goes into yeah, a book. But I yeah. think the combo of your knowledge and, 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 the, and the beautiful illustration of her knowledge as well mm. is, makes it a little bit different. Because, yeah. you know, because a lot of books, books get churned out quite a lot of them nowadays, don't they? And it's quite, it's quite a, so I just think it stands out and um, you've done a brilliant job and I think it. there's that whole sort of like rewilding movement, but I'm not, I don't, that is more like up in the highlands and you're going to, you know, have a big area closed off from deer or sheep grazing. Yeah. Whereas sustainable gardening is gardening that is... People's both, back garden, this yeah. is, yeah. And it's, it's good for people and the planet. It, but it is, yeah, I think there is that in, misinterpretation that you, you, we walk off and leave it. In London, it would mean you'd be shopping tollies and crisp yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you know, but I think that's it, 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 and also I think what it's good about the book is and this is important for everyone to understand. It's not about scale either. You know, you can do the I do it on my balcony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, you don't you know, need that was the nice thing about the book is you don't need to. You can have a pond in a container as well. Yeah. You don't need to have a huge space to do a bit for maybe plant a container up for pollinators. Yes. You don't need to uh, have a huge garden. Well, I call it the duvet effect. If everybody did a little square meter all around the country and you put that together, you'd have this huge quilt of our. Of, of and it's like, a, as you say, that's yeah. a great way of describing it. And it's like a mosaic up and down the yeah. country, mm. corridors. But well, the worst is, you know, they have a new house development and they put in those like fence yeah. structures and the hedgehog can't move in between. Yeah, no hedgehog. And, and also, yeah. you know, they'll put in some plants they bought down a DIY centre and they're off, they'll go. Because this is the big fight for us, I think, is how do we change that mentality? It's, it isn't an afterthought. Your outdoor space isn't something you do for a couple of grand at the end of the day if you're a, a housing association developer or whatever. You need, we need to put more thought into those outdoor spaces, those pockets of areas. And they need to be properly designed. They need people who know their plants and then they need to be maintained. And I think so many times developers or landscape architects, they like put in sort of bog standard plants or mm-hmm. they haven't thought about the design well enough and then they don't invest for that. Maintenance is key. No, yeah, absolutely. Because we, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I think the lack of gardeners, professional gardeners is an issue. And that skill set. Yeah, because yeah. it takes you a while to learn to be one and you carry on learning for good. But I think as an industry, but also as a society, we need to give more time to making sure we've got good gardeners. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think like anyone can do gardening.
learning and yeah. it is available to all but I think you do need the experts that have trained yeah. and are able to understand how to maintain a garden. The amazing thing about being a gardener I always think is that when I walk down the road it's never the same journey because I'm looking at how plants change. How... We need to sell that don't we? We really need to sell that. And like look, well I just feel so lucky this is my office it's a yeah. green oasis. You know it's important that you know, we need to connect people with nature, understand plants and the amount of people at my age are asking me now you know how do they grow this in their garden yeah. looking for advice so our our knowledge is very valuable I think we are um, if you like we're the bankers of the future in a way <laughs> we are don't we because we've got this knowledge in a little yeah. things about horticulture is it's very hard to, to put into figures mm -hmm. good mental health you can't give that to an accountant yeah. looking after a plant you can't give that to yeah. it's not a finger counting thing is it so it's very hard for us to go well look how great we are and what we do but and I think, yeah I think, sorry I think it's to try and make people aware of how many options of a career path there are within horticulture yes. as well mm. and just value it as much as possible because you know if you make it a worthwhile career or they know at school that it, you can go and study horticulture or as many people come and say oh I didn't know about it or until later in life it is a career path and I think now there's a, even through COVID times there's a lot of appreciation and movement towards you know working in a garden yeah hopefully we're getting some momentum you know with all the issues that are going on at the moment and to be fair I mean Kirsty it's people like you who are going to carry it forward yeah it's true I'm a, don't blush on me it's like yeah but but it is you know you do brilliant work it's a real honour for you to sit down with me like this I really appreciate it and I'm sure you're going to have loads and loads to offer in the future whether it be encouraging young girls into the industry or whether it's just basically encouraging people to do rain gardens or think about their surroundings I think you've got a big future ahead of you and I really appreciate our conversation thank well, you well thank you so much for visiting us Right, now time for some of your questions in the post bag. I'm here with Chris and Anton. Hello. Hi, Hi. First question. I have a glut of climbing French beans. I've eaten lots, I've frozen lots more, and I've given away lots, but I still have large numbers of pods full of fat seeds. I will, of course, save lots of seeds and give away plenty, but I wondered if the dried seeds are edible, and if so, what's the best way to prepare them? Well, this is really good one, this, because people don't normally think of French beans as something that you can store. So, Anton, what's your experience? Well, you certainly can eat them, actually. it's uh, I think it's only sort of more recently, in fact, that people have started eating beans as whole pod beans rather than using them for drying. I would let the beans dry on the plant if possible, but sometimes in our sort of UK weather, that doesn't happen completely. Um, so you, if you see that the sort of pods are starting to look like they're going a bit manky, you might want to then harvest them and put them somewhere dry. And I would spread them out in a greenhouse if you've got them or in a on, in trays in a dry room if you if you can do that and the outsides of the pods go nice and papery and then you've got a big nice sort of store of dried beans for the winter and it's it's a really good use of your space because you're taking something which would normally be a glut from the summer and then sort of transferring it to the winter when you've got less food so i think that makes a lot of sense in terms of how to prepare them, um, it's quite important that they get boiled pretty thoroughly. So you need to soak them overnight first, and then you need to boil them vigorously for 10 minutes, and then um, you just need to simmer them until they're tender. I really recommend 
getting a pressure cooker is one of the best investments for cooking beans. Um, I Mine's only just broken after 30 years of use. So it's so worthwhile because they cook so much more quickly and you'll use a lot less um, energy. It will cut down on your gas or electric bills. Yeah, people have to get over the fear factor, don't they, with pressure cookers? Yeah, I think nearly all, uh, certainly as far as I can see, all modern pressure cookers have got a safety catch so you're not going to end up with all your beans on the ceiling. <laughs> I remember as a as a wee apprentice on Brian Parks, the pressure cooker when I lived in a bed sit for like four or five years, I would have been lost lost without my pressure cooker. And it's a money saver, isn't it, Anton? It saves you a bit of quid as well. So you're saving money on the beans, you're saving money on the cooking. Definitely. Well worthwhile. I'm interested though, though you're saying about um so you're gonna store them. Um where would you store them? How would you store them? So I, I mean I would put my beans if I was saving them for seeds, say I'd hang them or I'd put them on newspaper. Is there a way to store them without them going mouldy or getting damp? I think the main thing is that they've got a bit of air circulation around them is, is so ideally i mean you could if you've got space hang them up on the, on the plants that's what people do in the heritage seed library if you haven't got space to do that then you can take the pods off and lay them in old sort of seed trays as long as they're clean and dry that works pretty well and we've got a few uh, varieties in this year's heritage seed library list so if you're not a member of the heritage seed library but you want to get hold of some wonderful French beans that work for drying, um, then we can recommend a few varieties. Um, we've got Essex pea bean, uh, brown soldier, which is a dwarf French bean, and blacksmith. So a, a great way to think of French beans. I grow yes. French beans from the Heritage Seed Library every year, and uh, I must say, they never let me down. They're a good plant. They always give you plenty of food. Uh, now and now I can use them in the winter as well, thanks to Anton. So uh, it's all, all a winner. And your favourite type, Anton? I particularly like Hidatsa Shield. I just it's just a beautiful looking bean. It's um got a, a browny red and, and white colouring, sort of slightly curvy pattern on it. And it's a really sort of creamy texture as well. So that's my favourite. Fantastic. Moving on to blight. So my polytunnel tomatoes developed late blight. I was able to ripen some of the tomatoes and saved the seed from them. But I have a couple of questions. First of all, is it safe and indeed wise to use that saved seed? And the other question is, should I treat the soil in the polytunnel with anything before replanting it? So Anton, first of all, is it safe, wise to use the seed? In a nutshell, it is safe to use the seed. She's right to have some sort of trepidation because a lot of tomato fungal diseases are actually transmitted through the seed. But late blight, that's Phytophthora infestans, is one of the ones which isn't. It's not transferred by the seeds. So it's perfectly safe to use the seed from um, plants which have been infected by late blight. Just in terms of recognising late blight, it's got that sort of really distinctive sort of grey halo on the edge of the leaves. That's the way to recognise that you've got late blight. Can I just ask, what do the fruits look like with late blight? So they tend to go a sort of very miserable grey sort of colour, basically, and they start to rot. Okay, all right. Pretty recognisable then. And um, Chris, would you uh, retreat the soil before you plant it again, if, if you've had a case of blight in, in a polytunnel? No, I'm not particularly worried about the soil because it's airborne, so it moves around in the air rather than the soil. And I, and I, I do get it on, I think we all get it on my allotment site. So I have quite a good crop. To me, it seems to be related to whether the air's humid, whether it's quite sticky or not. It, it tends to move around in, in what I call wet air. So if you 
get a humid period, suddenly it appears. But no problem with the soil at all. It's not soil-borne. So what I tend to do is when I get it, I know it spreads quite quickly. I take it out quite quickly. You can compost the plants. It's not a problem. But I wouldn't worry about it spreading through the soil. Okay. Okay. Lots of good news then. Um, When blight feels so final... Right, on to another question here, completely different. I'm organising work to remove Himalayan balsam from a watercourse. Can you advise on the best time to remove it? Chris, I think this might be one of your specialisms. <laughs> yeah, well, well, first of all, you'll know what it is simply because you'll know the, the plant Busy Lizzie. And it is really just a giant Busy Lizzie. Or, I love, I love this name for it, as they call it in Brazil, Shameless Susie. And the reason they call it those names is because it's a profuse flower. It, as soon as it's up, it will start to flower. And what tends to happen is the reason it's quite successful is the seed pods will mature, but they're spring-loaded. They're trap-loaded. So every time an animal or a human touches them, it will just spit seeds everywhere. So it's incredibly effective at propagation, which that's why it covers so much ground and is such a problem. So the best way to get rid of it is to tackle it early. So early spring, when you start to see those seedlings start to germinate, it's a real case of seed before they, a weed before they seed. It's important to point out, it's best to pull them out by hand. So early spring, by hand. Get a line of view, if you're lucky enough to have volunteers, get a line of view, see where they're germinating on the, near the water course and move in a line and just pull them up by hand. You don't want to be using machinery because there might be frogs, toads, newts, whatever, in that ground. So you have to be careful of the wildlife. Uh, plus, it's a very mushy plant if you try and use any kind of machine on it. Move through it. It probably won't be the only time you do it because if it's been there a while, it would have seeded and seed will sit in the soil. So revisit it. Make sure you're pulling out all those plants when they're young before they flower and they become spring-loaded. Fantastic advice. Thank you very much. Back now to the vegetable patch. And my leeks have succumbed to what I think is Allium leaf miner. Does this mean I can't grow leeks in my garden again? Well, Anton, first of all, remind us, what is Allium leaf miner? So Allium leaf miner is a small fly that lays its eggs in leeks is the main problem with it, really. But it does attack other Alliums, members of the onion family as well. And once it's laid its eggs in there, you'll quite rapidly get all these sort of little maggots attacking the base of the plant. They tunnel down the leek. What you see is, first of all, you start to see the leaves twisting, and then you gradually see the whole plant sort of collapse in on itself and become a sort of rotting mess. You'll also find lots of little brown pupae, just about the size of cumin seeds in your leeks as well, and they can overwinter until it hatches for the next generation next year. Mm, Okay. So, Chris, have you had a problem with this? I'm not aware of it on my um, sites, actually. I'll point out, I'm not a massive leek grower. We get a bit of, quite a bit of rust on uh, with leeks on where I am, so I'm not a massive leek grower. But I don't think it's there, but it is in London, isn't it? And how much should everybody be worried about it? Well, we've actually monitored it at Garden Organic. We've sent out a few surveys, and, and um, it, started, it started off in the Midlands um, on an allotment I think it was in Wolverhampton, certainly around that sort of area, and it's gradually radiated out. So we did a survey, I think it was in 2011, and and then we did another survey in 2017, and um, it really spread across the country um, massively. Um, Still hadn't got north of Manchester then, but as far as I know, there are people in Scotland that have a problem with it now, so it really has spread over a lot of places. But... Having said that, it still seems to be quite sort of localised. You find sort of some sites have it and then down the road they, they don't have it. 
Okay, so if you've got it, um, it's a bit of a heart-sinking moment. Um, the question was, you know, can they grow leeks in their garden again? Uh, how can they go into next spring? Is there any hope? Can they protect against it? What, what would you advise? So the main egg-laying period is in the autumn. So you want to cover your crops with quite a fine mesh because otherwise they can lay their eggs through it. Um, you want to put, put it down end of August and have it sort of there till beginning of November. And that will protect the leeks against the um, allium leaf miner from laying its eggs. There's also a sort of smaller period of egg laying in the in the spring as well. So sometimes if you're unlucky, it can actually get onto your transplants as you're as you're growing them. So if you want to be really vigilant, you need to cover those as well. All right. Well, that's great. What a good round of questions and some really, really interesting knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing that with us all. Uh, thanks to Chris and Anton. See you next time. Bye for now. Cheers, Fiona. Bye. That's all we've got time for this month. Try to enjoy the sights and sounds of autumn and do send us in your organic gardening questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via our website or social media. We're at Garden Organic UK on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok and LinkedIn. And if you're not a member of Garden Organic already, now's a great time to join. If you add the Heritage Seed Library onto your membership, you'll be able to choose six packets of Heritage Vegetable Seed to grow yourself once our seed list goes live in December. Thanks again to our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition, and to Kevin McLeod for our theme music. That's it. Until next time.